Let me uh, begin this morning by asking you a question. It's a question I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask you anyway. My question is, have you ever had a bad day? A bad day, huh? You know, one of those days when just everything seems to go wrong, right? You get out of bed in the morning and stub your toe and it's downhill from there on out. Right? We've all had those bad kinds of days. Let me ask you, in the midst of those bad days, have you ever been ever wondered, what is it God is trying to teach me? What is it that God wants me to, to learn in the midst of all of this problems that are going on? Well, no matter how bad your days have been, they're probably not as bad as is the day of a guy I read about this week. I read about this guy. Now, this is supposedly a true account taken from the Internet, so that means that I believe it, right? <laughs> anyway, this is, uh, this is supposedly a true account of a person's written request for a sick leave. So listen. When I got to the building, I found that the hurricane had knocked off some bricks around the top. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted a couple of barrels full of bricks. When I had fixed the damage area, there were a lot of bricks left over. Then I went to the bottom and began releasing the line. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was much heavier than I was, and before I knew what was happening, the barrel had started coming down, jerking me up. I decided to hang on since I was too far off the ground by then to jump. And halfway up, I met the barrel of bricks coming down fast, and I received a hard blow on my shoulder. I then continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers pinched and jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground hard, it burst its bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the barrel. So I started down again at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up fast and received severe injuries to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the pile of spilled bricks, getting several painful cuts and deep bruises. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of my grip on the line. (laughs) The barrel came down fast giving me another blow on my head and putting me in the hospital. I requestfully, or respectfully request sick leave. Right? That's foolish. Nobody, nothing ever happened like that to somebody. I don't think. Anyway, open your Bibles to John 15. This is the third and final part of this beginning to John 15, called Pruned and Productive. And it's been fascinating since, uh, since we began this just a couple of weeks ago. How many of you are being pruned? And people have called me. They've dropped me notes. They've stopped me to tell me, when are you going to stop preaching about this? Because I can't stand the pain anymore. No, it it's really has been fascinating to see as we've begun just to work through this process about God pruning our lives so that we might be more productive for Him. How much pruning, when you're looking for it, you see in your own life and in others. So pruned and productive here in chapter 15 of John. 
just verses 1 and 1 through 3. Let me read it again to get started here. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. A couple of weeks ago when we began this, we said that there are four aspects of divine pruning here in these first three verses that we want to take note of. And it's these four aspects of divine pruning that the Father uses in us so that we will become more spiritually productive in our own lives. That's the metaphor that that Jesus gives here, the pruning of the vineyard. And that speaks volumes about what's going on spiritually in our lives. Just quickly reviewing them, they're on your hand out there, but we noted first that you have to, we must identify the individuals who are being pruned. So the first thing to do is figure out who it is, and, and we did that a couple of weeks ago. Second, we need to embrace the idea of pruning itself. It's not something to be rejected or shunned or pushed away. It's something that needs to be embraced. It is something that God has for us for our benefit and for His glory. So painful as it is, we have to embrace the very idea of pruning. And then third, last week, we noted we must appreciate the intent of the pruning. Not just to cause pain for pain's sake, but it is so that we might be more fruitful. We might bear more fruit, the end there of verse 2. And that leads us to our fourth aspect this morning, and we'll finish these three verses. And that is that we must understand the instrument of pruning. How does God prune His people? That's the question before us this morning, and the text is answered here in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, pruning involves hardship. Pruning in the natural world involves hardship. It's the snipping off of unproductive growth. And it's a shock to a plant when you start cutting limbs off of it. And if you prune the way I prune, it almost causes heart failure. You know, you just whack those puppies right down to the ground. God is a better pruner than I am, but it always involves a measure of hardship. Okay, There there are storms in life, there are suffering that come to us, that are part of the pruning process of God. And it's in those storms, it's in those periods of our lives when when things are most difficult that God does His most effective work. long time ago, one of the sages of the church said that God can never use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. That the the path to being used by God in a big way, in a great way, is a path of pain. I guess if you want an illustration of that, you would look at the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is in the pain, it is in the suffering that God does what He is going to do. It is not so much in the good times that we grow as believers, it is in the bad times. It is the hard times in which we grow. These experiences of suffering, these experiences of pain, provide the opportunity for God to prune us. It's the same message given by the author of Hebrews over in Hebrews chapter 12 when he talks about discipline. Right? That, the, that a father who loves his son disciplines him. And in fact, the sign of being illegitimate 
not having a, a real and true father is that there is no discipline in your life. And the author of the Hebrews goes on to say that discipline is not pleasant at the time it happens. So it's not like we deny that there is pain and that there is suffering in our lives. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. We acknowledge it exists. We acknowledge it hurts. But we understand that God is about His business during those times. And so it's in that sense that the, we, we appreciate, we embrace, we long for the pruning. We long for the pruning. God brings storms into your life. The, the sooner you can get a hold of that notion that this is not just some happenstance, this random chance. By the way, there is nothing random in God's ordered universe. Everything is working according to His plan to bring Him glory. The message of Ephesians 1. So the sooner we can get our arms around this and understand what God is doing, the, the better we'll appreciate what it is He's doing and the more effective and efficient it will become. Suffering is the lot of God's people. We've always suffered. Let me just review for you, and I am indebted to um, a seminary professor and mentor of mine, Dr. Roskup, for this list, but let me review for you suffering among the people of God, and, and you tell me if you don't think that this just covers the whole framework of human life. People suffer from sickness, like Job. Terrible sickness, debilitating illnesses come to the people of God. Just think of Job. Hardships come to the people of God. Hardships like being fatherless or being widowed. James speaks in James 1.27 about this is pure and undefiled religion, Right? to visit the widow and the orphan in their distress. It's very much a part of the people of God who experience things like being widowed, experience the hardship of being fatherless, loss of material goods. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that you, you, you've lost much and you counted it all joy. It can be in a moment in time. It can be all swept away. A house fire. It's all gone. People of God suffer. How about false accusation? False imprisonment? That kind of suffering can come to the people of God too. Just ask Joseph, who spent years in a prison because he lived righteously and was falsely accused. Slander can come upon you because of your relationship to God. Because you are a believer and you live distinctly as a believer in a fallen world, slander can come upon you. Shast David, the great psalmist of Israel. Psalm 31, verse 13. He laments the slander that has come to him because of his faith and relationship with the living God. How about an unreasonable boss? Or a difficult work schedule. That kind of suffering can come to the people of God too. Just ask Jacob. Whose boss changed his wages ten times and extended his contract unilaterally. You can have an unreasonable boss. You can work in dismal and difficult 
situations. That is part of God's process for you. How about the loss of a loved one? The death of one whom you are so bound together with. Just ask Mary and Martha the loss of their brother Lazarus, John 11. How about spiritual agony brought on by waywardness of people that we love? Perhaps children or, or parents or even spouses or, or just in the context of a church, friends whom we're deeply committed to and love and, and they go wayward from the Lord. They kind of they move away from the Lord and they're, and they're sort of turning their backs on Him. Ask the Apostle Paul about the suffering and about the agony that came into his life over the Corinthian church that he poured himself out for. And they rejected him. How about persecution by those that are antagonistic towards Christ? Jesus warned in Matthew 5 about being persecuted for his namesake. People who go out of their way to make your life miserable, potentially even seeking to do you bodily harm and even kill you. Why? Because of your relationship with the living God. Or Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 47, speaking of the horrors of war that come upon the just and the unjust alike. When the Babylonian captivity came and the nation of Israel was swept away, the righteous suffered along with the unrighteous. Suffering was their lot as well. Even oppression. James 2, verse 6, oppression by the rich and the powerful. It says there in James, they drag you into court. I mean, this is just a, a small and representative list of the kinds of, of sufferings and pressure that come upon the people of God. Suffering is a part of our lives. One of the reasons I began this morning with that goofy story is because all week long I've been making, working on this message and it's a heavy-duty deal to live and, and think and contemplate that, that our lot involves a fair degree of suffering. And so I wanted to begin with something a little light for you. One author wrote, and I can't credit him because it's anonymous. I don't know who it is, but he said this. Listen, pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. Pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. It is pain that brings us to the point of understanding what reality is, and that we are not self-sufficient, that we are not sovereign, that we are not in control of our own future, our own destiny. Indeed, it's in the control of someone else. So how do you respond? How are we to respond in the face of adversity? What is it that we're supposed to do? How is it that we're supposed to respond when that kind of adversity comes into our lives? Well, if you'll turn to the right over to James, you already know the answer. Some of you, you've got it rolling around in your brains already. James chapter 1, right? James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. How do you respond to adversity? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, boy, if that is not a message that cuts across the bow, isn't it? 
Consider it all joy. He doesn't say that it is joy. He just says you're to think of it as joy. Knowing something. Verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect could be translated mature. In fact, I like it better that way. That you might be mature, that you might be complete, that you might be lacking in nothing. These trials and the sufferings that come into your life, you're to count them as joy because God is using them to do something in you. Now, how do you consider it joy? In verse 2, do you just sort of suck it up and say, I'm having a good time, it's joyful? The answer is right there in the text. It begins in verse 5. The way that you consider it all joy is an answer, verse 5, is by prayer. It's by prayer. But if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. By the way, we misuse that verse all the time. We, we talk about, I need wisdom to know whether to buy a car or not, so let me just ask God. No, it's a, it's a good idea to ask God, but that's not what that verse is teaching you. In the context of James 1, the asking for wisdom from God is everything to do with living, how to live godly in the midst of suffering. That's the wisdom that you're supposed to ask for. And that's what it says that God will grant you, provided you meet the following requirements. If you lack wisdom in the midst of your trials, let you ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What he's saying is if you're going to ask God for wisdom to live godly in the midst of your trial, you've got to believe God's going to give it to you. And that you need to be willing to submit yourself and to follow the wisdom that God gives you. And by the way, when you are praying, it's not that he somehow mystically zaps you. Okay? He will speak to you through the word of God, and that's where the source of your wisdom will come. And you will humble and submit yourself to it. And to the extent you do, God will grant you what you need to count it all joy. Back to John 15. Now, some Bible commentators will say that it is that the instrument of God's pruning is suffering. That God will, will use the suffering to prune you. But I think in the context of John 15, verse 3, we need to make a distinction here. The distinction is that the suffering is not the instrument of the pruning. It is not the pruning shears. The suffering is the crucible in which the pruning occurs. The shears themselves are here for us in verse 3 of John 15. And it is the Word. Do you see it? It is the Word of God that acts as pruning shears in our lives. The crucible is suffering. The opportunity is suffering. What brings it to the head is suffering, but it is the Word of God that actually does the snipping. You could easily prove this point not just exegetically from John 15, but beyond that, from a simple observation of life. There are plenty of people, both believers, who are in a context of suffering and, and they do anything but grow in their faith. 
They respond back to God in anger and bitterness and resentment and blasphemy. So it is not the, the suffering itself that will produce the, the mature growth and the fruit right, of, of John 15.2. It is the word of God snipping away in the midst of the suffering that brings it about. It is the word of God like a sharp pruning shears that snips out the, the attitudes, the selfishness, the, the, uh, the things that we're doing that are displeasing to God, the things that we're not doing that would be pleasing to God, the, the selfishness, the, the self-aggrandizement, all of those kinds of deep-rooted sin, that's what's being snipped out by the Word of God. When we suffer, I told you it's the crucible, when we suffer, it... it takes us to the place where we must depend upon God. That's what suffering does. It, it kicks the props out from under your life. And it takes you to the point where you, you either depend upon God to reveal through His Word, or you don't. You live as a believer or you live as an atheist, but you are in the crucible of suffering. And it's when you respond as a believer to the Word of God that that pruning begins to happen and you begin to mature. It's in suffering that you grab a hold of the promises of God. And by faith, you make them your own. Pruning involves a sharp instrument, doesn't it? You can't prune a grapevine with a butter knife. It's a very sharp instrument necessary to cut away the unproductive growth. Here again, John 15, verse 3, the the instrument of the Father's pruning, the sharp instrument by which He prunes, cleans here. By the way, the, the, the translated cleans or prunes up in verse 2, it's, it's just the, it's the same root word. It can be translated either way, prunes or cleans. When you prune, you're essentially cleaning out dead growth. The means by which He does it again, verse 3 here, is... The word of Jesus. Do you see it? You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. It is the word of Jesus. And just earlier in the, same, uh, the previous chapter, verse 24, chapter 14, Jesus is very clear to say that my word and the Father's word are the same word. So it is the word of God that cleans, that prunes, that cleanses. And notice again in verse 3, Jesus makes an interesting statement here. He says, you are already clean or already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. That should cause our minds to flip back to uh, chapter 13 where there's a similar circumstance. that will help us unlock the meaning here in John 15. Back in John 13, still in the upper room, still the same night, just a little while earlier, Jesus is coming around to wash their feet, right? And they're saying, no, 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 don't wash my feet. And Jesus in verse 10 says to Peter, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and he is completely clean. And you are clean. There in John 13, the metaphor is, is in the context of foot washing. And he's saying that by my word, you have been cleansed, but you still need to, to have your feet washed. You've been bathed, but there's a constant need to, to wash off the grime that you are picking up as you walk through life. Well, here over in John 15, it's a similar idea. You have been cleaned. 
You have been pruned by the word of God. He's speaking to his disciples here. You have come by faith into the kingdom. But there is a need for an ongoing pruning process. That which cleaned you initially and brought you in is that which will continue to clean and prune you and make you as God would have you to be. Now we see that as we just turn to the right here. and We're all in the same time frame, folks. This is all the same night. This is one long sermon here, or a series of sermons. John 17, verse 17. Jesus is very clear what it is that prunes, what it is that sanctifies. Verse 17, John 17, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. It is your word. It is the word of God. And that same word is not just for them, but for us. Look down to verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. It is through the apostolic testimony inscripturated for us in the Bible that God snips away at our lives. I mean, why is it so important? Why do we stress so much that you read the scriptures? regularly, faithfully, completely. It is because through the Word of God that He does His snipping work. If the Scriptures are not continually washing you, just to use another metaphor, then, the, then your growth will be stunted. We heard the baptismal testimony, right? What was it that worked in Janelle's heart that she told you to continue to confirm her faith and, and drip? Excuse me, draw her to the point where she knew she had to give public testimony of faith in baptism. What was the answer? She said it was before she left for school and when she got home from school. It was the Word of God. It was the Word of God. It is the Scriptures that prune us. It is the Word of God that makes us productive in the crucible of suffering. There are all kinds of statements all over the scriptures that are talking about the, you know, the importance of the scriptures in regard to this topic. 1 Peter one twenty three, You've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. You enter into the family of God through the, the living and abiding word of God. And it is the word of God then that continues that process in your life. As the Holy Spirit uses His Word to work in our heart, He brings about growth. He convinces us of the reality revealed through the eyes of God in the Scripture. He he convicts us of sin. Psalm 119, verse 11, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against thee. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All scripture is inspired by God, right, and profitable, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is through the scriptures that God prunes. It is the instrument of of his pruning. It is the pruning shears. It is the sharp knife. Let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples. Last week, 
We talked about different kind of, of issues or sin in our lives that God prunes away. Do you remember that? Nod your head if you remember anything from last week. You remember that you were here last week. Okay, good. Last week, I gave you four types of pruning that God does. Do you remember that? I said first that God prunes known sin out of our lives. And the means and the mechanism by which he prunes out known sin is the word of God. And it frequently occurs in the crucible of suffering. For example, when the great king of of Israel looked upon Bathsheba, right? Took another man's wife to himself, and you know the story, and the great sin in which he fell. Known sin, that's not unknown. Even the pagans know you're not to have another man's wife. So David fell into such great sin, and God brought suffering into his life. You can read Psalm 32, and you can, you can read about the suffering that David wrote about it afterwards. But it was through the word of God in the mouth of the prophet Nathan that came to David and rebuked him for his sin. And David was pruned that day, wasn't he? And God restored him. So the pruning of known sin in our lives comes through the word of God, just like it did in David's life. Now, you won't have your own personal prophet that will come up to you and confront you. Okay? You've got something way better than that. You have the, all the prophets of God all here for you. <coughs> we also talked about the pruning of known sin last week. Or excuse me, of new sin, rather. The pruning of new sin. That is, that is sin that is sin, but we're not aware of it. That is something that we're doing or not doing that is sinful, but we've just not become aware of it. And then we do become aware of it, and God prunes it out of our life. Now, I want to give you an amazing example of this. Go back uh, to 2 Kings. <coughs> Excuse me. I think this is one of the most fascinating sections of the book of the Kings. 2 Kings 22. an incident in the life of the good king Josiah. Josiah ascended to the throne. He is the grandson of Manasseh, one of the worst kings of Israel, with one of the longest reigns. Manasseh, under his evil leadership, caused the nation of Judah to descend to an incredibly low depth. And one of the things that Manasseh did was to round up and destroy copies of the scriptures because they rebuked him. And so he destroyed them. And this is where the pruning of new sin comes in. Josiah, in his 18th year of his reign, verse 3, chapter 22, you see that. Now it came about the 18th year of King Josiah. He's 26 years old at this point. And he he wants to have the temple rebuilt because it had fallen into disrepair under Manasseh. And so he, he institutes this plan to rebuild the temple. And in the process of remodeling the temple, there's an amazing discovery that shows up here in um, in verse 8. It says, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. They found the Pentateuch. 
The first five books, there was one scroll that apparently was not destroyed. And it was somewhere, maybe in a closet, maybe behind a wall, hidden by a faithful priest. Who knows? But the word of God had been hidden from the people of God for almost 70 years. Shaphan reads it, verse 9. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. 